uh, pretty easy to find me um, if I'm not here at the church. Uh, you can check Chick-fil-A or, or Tom's Restaurant on, uh, on Walnut between Lake and Hill. Uh, I love restaurants um, for lots of reasons. The most obvious is I clearly like to eat, but beyond the obvious, um, I'm an extrovert, and so for me it's a socialization thing, especially as a church planter. You know, when I, when I was part of the team, very small midget team that started our church seven years ago this October, um, most of my time Monday through Friday was spent by my lonesome, and so being in an office by yourself is no fun, so I just had to find a place where I could kind of sort of feel like I was in community. Um, my favorite sitcom uh, from my younger adult years was Cheers, where they would all go to the bar, and as the song sang at the beginning of each episode, you go where everybody knows your name. And that's kind of sort of what restaurants have become to me. It's a place of socialization, a connection. Um, and also, uh, I tend to like to meet people at places like Tom's uh, because there are booths. And I'm a big booth guy. Um, and that's because, as you know, I'm a smidge ADD, and so getting me in conversation is a challenge, uh, and so it helps me to focus when I'm sitting across and having a meal with somebody. It helps me concentrate. Unless, of course, we're meeting at Buffalo Wild Wings, then all bets are off because there's a television and a game on everywhere, and I'm like a puppy. It's, you know, and so it's really not an enjoyable experience, so I try to avoid those with people. Um, I've noticed in all of the time, and it's been considerable time spent in restaurants, that uh, restaurants and churches have a lot in common. Uh, first, new churches and new restaurants always get curious first-time visitors. Now, they may never come back, but uh, both can count on an initial wave of look-and-see people. Uh, secondly, if people don't have some emotional connection or purpose for being at a restaurant or a church, they'll visit a new one when they get bored at their current favorite place. And then finally, at both restaurants and churches, there are different types of people. There are those who are serving, and then those who are consuming, and strangely, those who are doing both. Now, unfortunately, uh, in American culture, Western Christianity, if you will, uh, the large number of churches have adopted the mindset of our culture and encouraged a consumeristic Christianity. Now, what this looks like is you come in like you're going to a restaurant, you sit down, you get served, you get up, you leave, you know, and then on your way out the door, you complain about the service in some way, which is sort of kind of like sport, at least it was in the South. You know, the post-church sit around and critique the worship or sermon time. That's what, honestly, Christians would do with their sad spare time on their hands. And so part of what the experience has been is to encourage you to think that way. And responsible, in part, have been uh, ministers who really like being the Savior and really liked attracting huge crowds and really liked being a celebrity instead of a shepherd. And uh, I have to confess that that is a part of the DNA of my young ministry life as well. And so I think in many ways uh, our consumer culture has 
shaped the church. And, and this month, we have begun to take a look at our, our local church and take an initiative, if you will, to see where God has gifted each of us for service. And this week's message is simply entitled, Initiative, Loving Jesus Through Serving the Church. Now, for the mature believer, we're not, if we want to call ourselves that, primarily a customer, but rather a servant. And that doesn't mean God doesn't meet needs of ours through the church. I mean, we have to take breaks, too, like they do at the restaurant and eat lunch and catch our breath. But the primary posture of a mature Christian would be that they'd find more joy in giving than receiving. They would be a servant. I would say to those of us in the over 50 crowd that if you're approaching your golden years and still complaining that the music isn't your favorite style or you have a semblance of other critical thoughts, that that might be an indicator that a consumer mentality is still alive and well in your soul. Uh, But now, more than taking the initiative to discover gifts and serve the church, in our passage today, we've stumbled on an amazing reality that the gospel makes possible. And that is, we can now love God. Now, well, what exactly do I mean? Well, I'll take Jesus' words as our guide from Matthew chapter 22. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And they said to him, You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus' summary of the law is that we would love God and love our fellow human being. And it may seem on the surface that people could love God if they didn't know him through Christ. But as we'll see today, as it pertains to our gifts in the church, an action isn't love unless it's done for someone without expecting something in return. If I give you something but keep a record of that gift and at some point figure your genero- my generosity will yield a reward for me, what I did was not an act of love. And it may seem like rhetorical hair-splitting to some, but I would put it like this. Um, It isn't loving for me to clean up the house, supposedly for my wife, only to set her up for the big ask, which is, look at how beautifully clean our home is. By the way, wouldn't a 72-inch flat-screen 4K TV look really good right here? See, that's manipulative. It's a selfish action. And the gospel frees us from judgment. And so we don't have to be afraid to love God with all of our heart. Many people do their acts of service for God expecting that he will therefore be obligated to bless them or let them into heaven or owe them something else. Uh, This isn't love for God. As I said, the basis for our confidence that we are right with the Father is Christ's goodness alone. We've been forgiven for our sins through his sacrifice. His spirit in our life has guaranteed that we are seen by him as holy in his sight simply because his goodness, his holiness has been imputed to us, credited to us. See, in this posture, we now are freed from impure motives. We, we actually have the opportunity to take the initiative 
to love God, to do something for him that has nothing to do with expecting that we'd get anything in return. It's exciting to think about. And part of this month of discovery in our church requires your participation. As you've seen, if you didn't get a bulletin on your way in, I would encourage you to grab one. There's just so much data that we could not communicate in front of you at the same time. It's all up on the website now, everything from community groups to anything else you'd probably need to know about our church. We are encouraging you to take a survey this month to discover your gifts. The web address for that free survey, which is completely confidential and results only sent to you, is on the front of the bulletin. It's also something you can access through the front page of our website. Just click on in the bottom right-hand corner of the website the thing that says gift assessment. We also want, though, to encourage you to take a chance Take a chance by using those gifts inside one of the service teams. We have several, and you can read about those in your bulletin as well. We have luncheons planned in October and November after church for a variety of different places where you can use your gifts. But those gifts are to be used to show love for God. That's what's to drive us to do things. Paul made it clear in today's verses that the spiritual gift were a means, not an end. The gifts were merely the means by which love for God is shown and edification of his people is brought about. And Paul does this in a really interesting way that for me, I needed the reminder of this week because I have been doing weddings upon weddings upon weddings of late. Paul sandwiches 1 Corinthians 13 between two chapters on spiritual gifts. And I want to show you, if we can today, why that would be the case. First thought for you is this today. Service without love is not obedience to God. Service without love is not obedience to God. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. This is how Paul, the great apostle, the great church builder, the great writer of God's word through epistles inspired by the Holy Spirit says, he doesn't do it in love, he's nothing. I I find that remarkable that he would characterize himself apart from a motive that did it for others and ultimately for God, that his action and his status mean zilch. See, service without love is not to our credit in any way. God receives no joy. He doesn't feel love from it. Some people say, isn't it good that people do good things anyway? And I would say, sure, I really don't care why the doctor who healed my disease did it. I'm just thrilled he did. You know? So, yes, I'm glad people do good things. But when we talk about are we actually loving God, is this obedience to God? It isn't if we're not doing it from a place of love in our soul where we're saying, I'm trying to love God and trying to love people. I'm not trying to get from them. The Apostle John records Jesus saying in John 14, 21, that whoever has his commands and obeys them is the one that loves him. So that it only makes sense that if we serve others but don't do it 
in and through the love of Christ, we've sort of defeated the purpose for doing the good works in the first place. You might ask why. Well, because in doing acts of righteousness through Christ, for Christ, and in the love of Christ, you actually demonstrate the character of Christ. Selfish actions, self-serving acts of righteousness don't reflect his care, don't reflect Christ's selflessness, don't reflect reflect a whole host of characteristics that would be evidenced by real love, patience, kindness, humility. These were not what the Corinthians were demonstrating through their use of gifts in the church. Listed in the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians, the letter to the first, the first letter to the Corinthians, are a whole series of things that were going awry. And in the months of October and November, we'll have a nine-week series called Fault Lines in the Church. And these are the places of division that were actually occurring in that church. And we're hoping to learn from their experience and avoid some of those same things in our experiencers, uh, Christians at Prism Church. But these characteristics listed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 are to demonstrate how we are to live in church community with each other. So I read from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6, and I'm going to encourage you to try to remember that when Paul wrote these things, he wasn't thinking about your wedding day. He, he was actually thinking about your Sundays and your experience in walking in community. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so what you have in 1 Corinthians 13 is the practical definition of love lived out in Christian community. These descriptors were supposed to counteract what the Corinthians were exhibiting. In chapter 3, he talks about their jealousy. In chapter 4, their boasting and pride. In chapter 5, their celebration of unrighteousness. In chapter 6, their remembering of wrongs done to them. In chapter 10, their living selfless, selfishly. And so Paul breaks from saying, you, you've got all these gifts and you've got all these things going on in your life, but you're not doing these things in love you're doing them for reasons that don't glorify Jesus at all. You know how you know you have a great drummer in a worship band? When you don't hear them. Yeah, that's when you know. If you have a rookie drummer, you notice it. Because the clanging takes place at the all wrong times. A cymbal that's like crashed in the middle of a really tender moment is sort of painful. Stephen, our, our new pastoral intern slash college minister slash drummer... Dude, he's, he's pretty impressive. Renaissance guy like our buddy Brooks who just moved to Nashville. Does it all. But I'm telling you, if he wasn't a good drummer, you'd know it. Because symbols at the wrong time are irritating. And, and so actions with impure motives, your selfish desire to be recognized, your insecurity about your salvation 
Whatever is driving you to do something that's not done based on God's love for you and based on now your desire to love him and by extension obey him and love others like he would, any of those things become loud and annoying. They become not just irritating but a distraction to the church. It's clear from 1 Corinthians 13 that for something to be an act of love, it needs to be done like Christ and for Christ. And that means when we love others, we need to do so in a way that's reflective of Jesus and perform our acts of service not for ourselves or for our own benefit, no matter what the televangelist people might be telling you. Jesus said in John 13, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the command to love one another is not new because we just read earlier from Matthew, which was simply quoting from Leviticus 19, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The new command that Jesus was giving us was to love as he has loved us. Which, of course, brings an entirely new dimension to the depth of sacrifice expected in this love. People all over the southeast today are sacrificing, having people stay with them. It's one of those times in life where you figure out just how accustomed you've become to the comfort of your home when you are irritated by the presence of guests that you may not like all that much that need to stay for two days because of a disaster. It's a good litmus test for us to find out whether or not we are people that really love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus has said we're to love him and love others. And that in doing so, he would be glorified. In the exercise of spiritual gifts within the church, it's necessary to know their place in relationship to God's priorities. Your love expressed to somebody else is, is a higher priority than whatever gift you may be exercising. Christ's new command is to love us as he's loved, to love him and love one another as he's loved us. And uh, that's what we will be doing forever. One of the reasons I started camping out at Tom's restaurant around the corner was an empathy I have for people who start things. Um, as a two-time church planter, uh, I've told people before that the most difficult part of church planting is the 10 minutes before worship starts every Sunday for the first four years. Um, because you're just wondering, is anybody going to come? And, and for those of you who've had a, uh, you know, started a restaurant or a business, you've had that sense of, oh, Lord God, is this really going to work? And so when Tom's you know, announced that they were opening, I was like, I'm going to camp out there because I think they're really going to be happy to just have a butt in the seats because I've been there before and uh, know what it's like to not have anybody there. And so I just felt like that was sort of my duty as a community and as a byproduct of this, which I've continued for the last year and a half. God has opened doors for ministry with people at that restaurant who've actually had a role in our church of leading somebody to Christ who's now attending our church. And all of these things are happening, and I'm not trying to pat us on the back. We have our staff coffees there every week. 
we pray there. That must be weird for some of their employees. I mean, they're, we don't kneel on the floor next to the booth or anything. I mean, we're not weird, but, you know, we'll bow our heads quietly and pray for the needs of our church. Um, but it's part of an effort to say, you know, we're a part of your community. We love you. And they've been blessed by having a regular group of Christians just patronize their business. But our goal in doing that is not just to overeat, which, of course, you can do at Tom's, and certainly I have. The goal is that the people would see Christ in us. See, service without love is an obedience to God. Here's our second thought today. Service with love is eternal worship of God. This is one of these fascinating thoughts that, again, because of the influence of wedding culture, (laughs) movies, or even the fact that I do couple dozen wedding services a year, um, uh, I just forget by virtue of the sheer number of times I have to read through 1 Corinthians 13 as a nice flowery thought for the couple, um, the purpose of this text. And there's some things I found again this week that were really exciting. Verses 8 through 10 say this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. The partial will pass away. Uh, This is an exciting reality of the gospel and one I rediscovered in a fresh way this past week studying. I had lost sight of this important truth about spiritual gifts. They will not exist in eternity. Tongues will pass away, knowledge will pass away. All these gifts that Paul has listed out in 1 Corinthians 12 and reiterates some in 1 Corinthians 14, when we see Jesus face to face, when we move into eternity, we will be made like Christ and not be in need of spiritual gifts to serve him and the body. We will be like him without blemish and not in need of supernatural strength to live out the gospel. And most importantly, we will be with him And all of the gifts are designed to encourage and challenge us to to recognize his presence in our lives. And it won't be hard to see that in eternity. That's why Paul could say with clarity that service without substance is short-lived. Gifts will cease, but love will continue. There won't be faith or hope in heaven, but there will be love. Our faith will be sight. Our hope will be realized. But our love for and worship of God through service, both of each other and him, will be ongoing. That's why Jesus could say in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Because love will last forever. Jesus tells the analogous story about the final judgment when we'll all stand before the Father to give an account for what we've done in this lifetime. And those who've been made righteous in Christ, and what I mean by the reference to the righteous, this is not in our own righteousness. This parable is designed to help us have confidence that we are righteous because Christ has given us, or as theologians call it, imputed his righteousness to us. When we were brought to Christ, we were made holy in his sight. We were forgiven for our sins. So those who are called the righteous in this passage are going to be shocked to discover that when they were serving others, they were actually serving him. 
It says in Matthew 25, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In Romans 12, 1, we're told to offer our bodies as sacrifices. It's, a, it's an acceptable form of spiritual worship. And those who invest in caring for the least of these, which not only includes the downtrodden, but anyone who would humbly recognize themselves as the least of Jesus' children. If you're spending time caring for these, you're making an investment in eternity. You're going to look back at a life lived in his service and worship him. You are going to continue serving him in eternity, and that includes worshiping him. And we're going to serve each other and live together in eternity as brothers and sisters. And Charles Spurgeon says this, quote, We who believe in Jesus are going to live together in heaven forever and ever, so we may as well be good friends while we are here. We shall see each other there in one common glory and be occupied forever in one common employment, the adoration of our Lord and Master. The remembrance of this truth of God ought to break down many of the barriers which at present exist in society. We have the opportunity through our love for God to worship Him. And our service to him and others is a way we will worship him, not just now, but forever. You know, it's not lost on me that the central community sacrament of worship is communion. One of the means of grace that God's given us for our mutual encouragement and bonding with him and each other is a meal. The Lord's Supper was instituted not by a bunch of highfalutin, robe-donning, gold-plate-carrying priests who walked around distributing the elements to the wanting public like waiters at a restaurant. The scriptures describe this intimate setting with Jesus and his friends celebrating the Passover, the deliverance of the Israelites, which is merely a a foreshadowing of what Jesus was about to do in dying for the sins of anyone who would ever believe in him. I read from the Luke 22 text of the Lord's Supper. It says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Picture this. Him reclining. This is him in the most intimate and warm environments with friends. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled again. And uh, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, This is the cup. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
Jesus sitting with his friends across a meal, sharing with them. It communicates that he cares. He's saying, I've eagerly desired this. This is a moment for me. This This is unique and special. This is something I really want. I'm amazed at the love of God expressed in that. What we see on so many different levels is Jesus making an effort to make sure people know that he wants fellowship with them. Not just in the present, but just in his sacrifice. And he says to us, love each other as I've loved you. So it means that we have an endless study of the actions of Jesus towards others to use to tutor us in how to love each other. That's why we do community groups with meals. It's because Jesus really looked forward to being with people in community. It's why people sit across the table from each other at restaurants. It's to make real eye contact and establish real community. God is calling to us. He wants us to join the eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants us collectively to know that this is what he wants to express in his body and that the reason we have gifts is to glorify him and it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate and to take the initiative to actually love him. So I would pray that as we come to communion today, we would remember that it pleases Jesus when we love him and others as he did us. Let's pray together.